Well, open up your Bibles to the book of James. We're in the uh, very first chapter still. And I totally forgot to write down the page number. I think it's 1012, 1011, if you're using the black Bibles there in the pews in front of you. And we keep those, keep those Bibles open the whole time because we're going to refer to them often. Well, thanks, Caleb, for your, your words before I came up here today because what's important for us to remember as, as we look at this text, it's, it's short. It's only three verses, and it's three short verses. And there's nothing new about this that we're going to be faced with today. In fact, it's so simple that we forget how to live it. And we read passages like this, and we, we kind of just move on with our day. We move on, we move on to the next section, looking for something else, looking for something better. But what we have to remember, and I want to do first, before we really get into this text, is lay some groundwork. Because something about James that I've been learning is that because of, I think because of who he was writing to, he expected that they understood a lot about who God is and, and what these situations were that he was writing about. And, and today, he, he uses some terminology that he doesn't really explain too in depth. And so this is why I want to spend a little bit of time right now introducing us to some of these concepts. So we, we understand, we grew, a lot of us grew up in church. Even if you didn't grow up in church, you've heard the stories that, that we, we were created in the image of God. And God's purpose, taken from a systematic theology book, is that the purpose of God's will is to bring about the things necessary for the existence and activity of himself in all creation. And he created us to reflect him in that. And he gave us these, these attributes, these, these character attributes that were initially his, and he created us to use them to reflect his glory. And in, in, as caretakers in all of his creation. That's why he made us. He didn't make us like the plants and the animals who don't really have a purpose and a will. He gave us as humans the unique ability to have this distinctly unique purpose by our lives to reflect him in everything. But these attributes have gone wrong. And today we're going to see that here in the book of James, how the attribute of anger, which is a God-given attribute, has gone wrong. And how it's now mistreated and ignored and leveraged for our gain. It's distorted by the fall of mankind, beginning with the very first parents, our first parents, Adam and Eve. When the serpent came and tempted Eve, and Adam's distinct job would have been, if he had used his anger properly, to have poured his wrath out on that serpent and killed it to protect the innocence of his wife Eve. But instead, he didn't. He, instead, he used sinful tactics and blame-shifted to his wife instead of using this God-given attribute, anger. You see, anger is given to us by God as a tool for righteousness necessary for the existence and activity of creation along with many, many other godly attributes. But ever since Adam's folly, through all generations of all mankind, down to this very moment in this sanctuary where you sit, you have some little thought, some little pet peeve, something going on in your mind that is upsetting you, 
And it does all of us. We all have an anger issue. And I've been learning about this more and more. And it's a distortion of this godlike attribute of anger that's gone wrong. So we're going to slow down a little bit right here and just cover three short verses that explains the eternal consequence of this attribute gone wrong and how it's compared, interestingly, to God's righteousness. An, an interest, a seemingly strange contrast, our anger versus God's righteousness. But James has a reason for starting there because we're transitioning into a new section of the book. We've heard a lot about persevering under trial. And now we're going to start hearing about things that we need to specifically do to be living in our, in our faith. So we're going to learn today about how we must get rid of our sinful anger and humbly receive Jesus' righteousness. So that's the simplicity of this. It's that simple. When we read this text, we go, what, what else? We simply see get rid of sinful anger and receive Jesus' righteousness. So let's read the text, starting in verse 19. It says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. He says, get rid of sinful anger. Every person is called to carefully and patiently listen, he says right here in the beginning of verse 19. So we're going to work through this just straight through the text. We're just going to kind of take things as they come. So first thing we hear is we're called to be, after he says beloved brothers, he, he loves these people. He says this many times through this text or through his book. He addresses them as his beloved. He's saying this out of love, in fact. He's saying, let every person be quick to hear. In other words, patiently listen. This is where he starts his hearing and doing. We cannot do anything without first listening. We can't do anything without first listening and hearing and, in, and engaging in others. So we've got to think about everything that came before this in the book. He talked about trials. He talked about persevering. He, and we, we heard last week in, in, in the section it's all regardless of our circumstances. God doesn't give us these trials as a temptation. He doesn't lead us in, into these trials for our sin. He leads us in these trials for, for our good and for our righteousness. But I think naturally, a lot of these trials and temptations that we find ourselves in lead us very naturally into anger. So I think it's, I think it's really keen of James to deal with anger first before he moves on to a lot, into a lot of these other things, he wants, he wants to see us purified and to reflect God with our lives. So I think that's why he starts here with anger. But it naturally, and when, we're, when we're tested, when we're persecuted, when we face the, the fears and the trials of life, we're, we very naturally move very quickly into anger. I think it's a natural response. So he's saying, all right, take a breath, slow down. And just listen. Listen to those around you. Listen to what's going on. 
Listen carefully to life. I, I don't do this very well sometimes. I'm in such a rush. I want to just get to the next thing. I, I want to move past whatever's giving me pressure or, or bothering me, and I just want to rush on and, and move past it. But he's saying, slow down and listen. And not all, or only are we called to carefully listen, but he's, he's saying, now carefully speak. So, Quick to hear, slow to speak. So he's, he's saying, speak carefully. After you've heard what's going on, ask a lot of questions, seek understanding. Then as a last resort, speak. The hardest thing for me to do sometimes, is, is, as a lot of you know, is to not speak. I want to I speak so that I can understand. I'm a verbal processor, and I know some of you are as well. I looked at Phyllis because I know, I think I've had this conversation with her. <laughs> Sorry, Phyllis. But some of you have been on the re- unfortunate receiving end of my verbal processing, and I might actually say something out of reaction that I'm not necessarily married to. I'm just saying it as a way to process through what I'm thinking and what you're saying to me. I'm sorry for that. I don't necessarily mean that to be my final authoritative thought on that thing, but people like me need to be extremely careful when it comes to this because. We struggle with this command to be slow to speak because we need to speak in order to understand sometimes. And I've even tried writing and journaling. I've, I've tried this, but it doesn't seem to work. So bear with me. Have patience with me. If I'm speaking to you and I say things you don't seem quite right, that's because I'm trying to figure it out. So if you're an internal processor, be patient with the external processors. God has wired us differently in that, in that regard. But we still need to be careful in what we say. Proverbs 10.19 says, When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. This, this text is actually calling us to speak. It's, it's actually not telling us to remain silent. I think that's important for you silent ones out there that don't like to talk, that are afraid to say something. Don't let fear stop you from saying the right thing. But do it carefully. And help those of us who struggle with it. But it, it requires wisdom. It requires understanding and asking a lot of questions, like what James is saying here. And then he's calling us to be carefully and patiently angry. Whoa. So after listening to others and to life in general and wisely responding, then we're commanded to carefully move towards an a unique, wholesome, godly anger that I think is, is a real challenge for us to understand. At least it is for me. I have literally wrestled with this text all week. I've had a few sleepless nights trying to understand how to, pre- how to present this to you and how to even uh, prepare my own heart for this because I'm no, I'm no expert in this whatsoever. I don't stand up here before you today because I have anger figured out and you need to listen to me. This is a problem for us that's so pervasive in culture because of what anger has has done in our society. But what he's saying here is to move towards a wholesome, godly anger. And because I don't claim to fully understand what that is, I am going to have to go to Scripture and look at some examples. 
So you can turn with me if you want, but I'm going to read from Exodus 34 what the Lord says of himself to Moses as he's speaking to him atop the mountain. He says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So this is just one example of many where we see that God is first and foremost extremely merciful in his anger, extremely patient and gracious to those who are wrong, who have wronged him, eternally wronged him. He is slow to anger, just as James is calling us to be slow to anger. James didn't come up with this. He is a student of the Bible, and the people he was writing this letter to probably were as well. They probably knew exactly what he was referring to. He was referring to all the Old Testament, all the examples of of God's patience and mercy. But he does not ignore evil. We see that here as well. He does not ignore evil. And so that is where he has the right to move towards his godly, wholesome, righteous anger that we're called to here as well. Let's look at another example. Another example from the New Testament, the book of Mark, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. This is where Jesus is encountering the self-righteous Pharisees in the temple. It says, Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus. So the Pharisees, they were watching Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do, to do harm, to save or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger and grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and the hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So we've got this contrast these two very, very opposite angers at play here. See, Jesus' righteous anger at the hardness of heart and the lack of humility and teachability in these, in these Pharisees who were unwilling to learn from Jesus and their hardness and willing to kill him for their pride. So on one hand, we see God is patient and quick to forgive, and on the other hand, he is angered at this hardness and pride that keeps us away from, from him. It keeps us distant from him. So how does our anger really compare and hold up to God's anger? We're going to move right on into verse 20 where it says, The anger of a man does not produce the righteousness of God. Well, our sin has completely hijacked anger in us as that God-given attribute that we were given at creation. It's not what it was originally intended for. It was meant to, like I said, bring glory to God by protecting the innocent. But now it's used to bring ourselves glory. We use sinful, angry tactics like yelling to be heard and quick negative responses to show how annoyed we are at someone. We want people to notice our, our feelings. We want people, we want to give people the silent treatment so they know just how angry we really are at them without maybe telling them. We want to be passive-aggressive. 
We come to the point of boiling rage, clenched, clenched fists and teeth. We almost boil over or freeze, depending on our particular flavor of anger that day. All to prove that we're not happy with the situation because we're not getting what we want. And what's worse is that we do this so quickly, we can go from almost a peaceful, seemingly neutral state of mind Within seconds, we can be angry at something, at someone, at a situation, at a, at a people, at, a, you know, at your TV, at your car, at whatever it is. We can become so quickly enraged, can't we? Only, and it only produces a personal statement of who we are and what we want and what we stand for, which is loosely taken from a book that I'm reading called Good and Angry by David Pallison. It's a great book. It's a great book on this topic. Our anger tells the world what's important to us. And it tells the world what our idols are. Our anger comes out when our idols are endangered and we're afraid of what we might lose. Our man-centered anger is like our kingdom come, our will be done when it's done in sin. So how is this going to work in the church if we can't all get on the same page of our kingdom? If we're, all run, if we're all moving around trying to make our kingdoms come and we're not getting on the same page as God's kingdom come, we're not going to his word and we're just pursuing our own wills. It, it, it's, like, it's like this image of, of two teams of tug-of-war. You've got one team pulling in the same direction and then the other side, they're all pulling in different directions, not on the rope in the same direction. Well, the opposite side that's all pulling in the same direction, they're going to win because we're all over here fighting to get our own ways. That's kind of what it's the image that I had in my mind when I thought about when we're all fighting to get our own way and, and I don't want what you want and you want you, what you want. That's what it's like when we are pushing for our own kingdoms to come and our own wills to be done. But I've got to also stop and be realistic that anger is a true emotion that's triggered by a wide, wide range of, of deep, deep entrenched feelings that are real. And, and the feeling of victimization, that is real. Um, because that is not necessarily a bad thing. Anger is not a wrong response when we feel victimized or we perceive an evil. That's not necessarily the problem. It's a God-given response to react to evil, meant to protect, which, as I've been saying, has been all distorted and twisted up by sin. And that's the confusing thing for us, is to know how to respond and how to react. And the reason we feel that way is because injustice upsets God. So we intuitively get upset at injustice. We intuitively get upset when we've been wronged and we feel victimized. So if someone says something to you and you, you feel victimized, you turn and respond in anger. That's not necessarily wrong. It's, it's the, way we, the way we move forward is what's wrong. That's the problem that we run into. See, if you don't get angry about millions of babies being aborted every year, that's a problem. That should get you angry. That should get you kind of full of rage at the injustice there, is an there, there are injustices that we should be getting angry at. Anger is a good response to help motivate a good result. 
God's anger is evidently a purely purposeful response for his mission in making his name known among all the nations, which is motivated by eradicating our sin. That's what God gets angry at. He gets angry at our sin. He gets angry at the sin that has caused the, the twisted distortion of everything in culture, everything in our, in our lives. And God's anger is intensely, so this is where I'm doing the comparison. I've talked about our anger, and now we're, now we're going to see God's anger is intensely set against our sin and, all, and for all that is good and holy. And God hates sin because of how holy and how right he is and how much it has completely and utterly, literally ripped us away from his perfect intention for creation and everything that he made for us in the beginning. That's why he gets so angry at our sin. And that's what he gets angry about. He cannot ignore it. He will not ignore it. And he is forced to deal with it in a lovingly angry wrath. It's like parents with little children. If we ignore our kids' behavior and we let them run around like crazy mongrels, couldn't think of a better word there, but they run around crazy and we let them grow up in that, well, when they become adults, they're going to be like three-year-olds living in an adult body. We've all seen it. It's disgusting. And that's a little glimpse of what God sees when he sees the sin in us, and he gets angry at the fact that we live that way. And this is where we get the gospel. So here comes the hope in it for us, is that we were unjust towards God in our sin when he is gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, even, even though he knows we cannot attain to the law that he gave us, even though he knows that we cannot do enough to recover from the, from the destruction that's been caused by this. But it cost a lot for him. It cost him his life. Our redemption requires an eternally perfect price. That's the best way to say it. Our salvation from the sin and the destruction of our lives cost an eternally perfect price. Even the best sacrifice cannot cover the destruction caused by sin. And so this is what makes God so angry about it. So God came as a man, stepped into our world, taking on flesh, living in a a perfect life. And guess what happened? We read through the story of all the Gospels and we see angry, sinful, wicked, bitter, hardened men ripped his clothes from him, nailed him to a cross, and killed him, thinking that they were doing their, their religion justice by trying to get rid of this man who they thought was a pretender. They wanted to get rid of him because of their hardness of heart, because of their sinful anger. But God was dealing with our sin by pouring his wrath out on his son, his perfect son, instead of on us. Do you see the difference? I hope you do. I hope I've explained that well. Because in Romans 5, 9, he says, 
Since therefore, this is Paul saying, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. You see, wrath of God has to be paid for sin. It has to. And if it's not on Jesus, it's on you. God's anger is on you because of sin. That's the difference. So there's only two options for us. It's either God's anger justly put on his son for our sin or God's anger justly put on us for eternity in hell for our sin. There's only two options for us. So, our anger is not the same as God's righteous anger that James is calling us to here. It's the opposite. But there's hope for us. There's hope for us who realize that we're lost in our anger and in this sin. We recognize this is not righteous as God is calling us to. So, the next thing we see as we move into verse 21 is we must humbly receive Jesus' righteousness. So he says, put away that old sinful nature. Look at verse 21. He says, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. We get the opportunity to do something about the sin that we've been struggling with, this this sin of anger. He says, therefore, put it all away. It's rampant wickedness. That means superabundance. It's a remnant of the sin that's left over from before you were converted. For me, I was converted at 30 years old. I I remember all my time, well, most of my time before being a believer, and I understand this pretty well. For those of you who may not remember your conversion, may not recognize the fact that you bring a lot of sin with you even past conversion that you're still struggling with to this day. That is this I believe that is this rampant wickedness. It is a remnant of sin that we're going to continually fight and put off until the day we go to be with the Lord. And he's saying, he's saying, put it off. Put it away. It doesn't point others to Jesus. It only points them to you. Why would you want, anyone to, why would you want other people to see your own sin? So we're going to continue to be putting that away because we want, we want to, with our lives, point others to Jesus. We want to point others to him with our lives. So I, so that's why he's saying, put it off. And then live your new life, your, your new life in this new nature of Jesus. So we're going to receive with meekness this implanted word. Now let's take a look at what that means. We're not just called to put something away. We're called, more importantly, to put something on. So the putting away of the old sin, of the old nature, that's good. We need to do that. But more importantly, we need to put on this new nature that is far greater than our old natures. And we need to do this with meekness and humility, recognizing that we're not in any position to make this happen for ourselves. We need the Lord to do this for us. So without this implanted word, we're stuck in this, in this old rampant wickedness. So, and that's not where we want to be. We want to be in this implanted word. So let's take a look at what that means. Well, the implanted word is essentially the very nature of Jesus Christ coming to live inside of you at the time of your conversion. 
When I discovered this, I either had forgotten it or rediscovered it for the first time or the second time. I don't know. I'm forgetful. I was just blown away by the fact that James uses a word, and this is the only time he uses this word is ever used in all the scriptures right here, the implanted word. It's such a unique word. that I want to spend just a little bit of time helping us to just kind of marinate in it. We need to be engrafted into an entirely new nature to receive this grace and mercy and love and forgiveness that Christ, that God has for us through Christ Jesus. And let me explain it to you this way. You see this implanted word, it's Jesus, and he comes to make himself a new home in us by engrafting himself, by engrafting us into him, into a new root. So grapevines have long been used as a metaphor for God's people. But did you know that in vineyards across the world, that what they do is they oftentimes cut the grapevine off of its original root system and they engraft it into a new root that is actually able to withstand the disease of that particular soil. And the, and the fruit from that new plant is now way different than any fruit that the original plant with its original root system would have ever been able to produce in that soil. Even in very toxic soils around the world, they're able to produce amazing amounts of fruit from these grapevines. And that's very important for us to think about as we realize that as sprouts, we can't grow any fruit in us without being engrafted into a new root system. Then the vine needs to be continually tended and pruned and watered so at the time of harvest, the fruit is plentiful and sweet so that the vulnerable vine can only produce fruit when it's been implanted into that healthy root system. Or else we, left alone, will never produce anything, only dead, rampantly wicked, tasteless, rotten, deadly fruit. That's all we can produce on our own without the implanted word of God, who is able to save our souls. So let the wise vine dresser implant you into his root and transform you into his beautiful vineyard. Because, as verse 21 goes on to say, that Jesus is able to save our souls. And this, as we've just seen, requires humility. It requires us to be cut off from our former ways. To put off the sinful things and to put on Jesus. The thing about James that also that I've been learning, it's amazing, is just these metaphors that he uses that are just kind of carried out throughout all of Scripture. And it's kind of just woven in to all of his Proverbs-like statements. But these aren't separate. They, they all flow together. I've seen that more and more as I read this book over and over and over again, how they lead from one thing to the next. So next week, Keith will be bringing us another sermon that's actually a continuation of this one. It's a continuation of the Word, of this concept of the Word, and he just weaves it through this, this entire section of the book. It's not only are we called to put off these things and put on Christ, we're called to put on the Word and to live deeply in it and to know it. So it wouldn't be a very good sermon if I didn't challenge you in some way. So I'm going to challenge you to think about something that's going on in your life right now. Something that is angering you. And I want you to ask yourself, what is it? 
I know everyone's in a totally different stage of life, but we all live this life together. We all meet together regularly. I know all of you do. We get together for community groups and life transformation groups and get together over coffee and we have meetings throughout the week. And I want you to talk to one another about what it is that is making you angry right now. I want, to, I want you to talk to someone about what it is that's keeping you from understanding that your anger is actually hardening your heart against God's righteousness. Because we see them in this, in this as two opposing things. Our anger is actually opposing God's righteousness, according to this passage. I don't, I don't want us to be hardened. I don't want us to be unteachable. I want us to all be able to look to God's word together and, and uniquely as a church, confess our sin to one another. That's what we're meant to do. I also want to challenge any of you who have not put your faith in Jesus, and I'm talking to kids here too. Kids, this is your opportunity. This passage speaks to you as well. I know you get angry. I live in a household with kids. But I want to challenge you too to think about your faith and to consider whether or not you, you're, you're truly trusting in yourself, trusting in what you think is right and putting, you know, putting your faith in what, what, what you want to pursue or are you putting your faith in Jesus? I feel like there's so much more I could say about that. As John 3, 36, I just want to reference this, says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Guys, that's serious stuff. Either the wrath was poured out on Jesus for our sake or it's poured out on us. The song we sing right before I came up here, Speak, O Lord. I want to read a, a comment that was made about this, about this song. And the reason it was written is because of this. It says, one of Christianity's distinctives is that we worship a God who has spoken, who is not silent from God the Father, speaking the world into creation, to speaking through life, I'm sorry, speaking through his living word in Christ, to speaking by his spirit through the written word. Throughout history, the world Throughout history, the word of God has transformed the most proud leaders and most hopeless victims, the greatest civilizations and the remotest villages in every age to every corner of the world. So incredible is its power. Often today, however, the preaching of the word has, be, has become diminished in value from its prominence and a service, service to its passion. But most of all, in our expectation, as we sit down and we ask God to speak to us, So in Isaiah, the people were performing many acts in the name of God. And the Lord said, This is the one to whom I will turn my face. He who is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. Do we tremble at God's word? Do we realize our true identity when we have been engrafted into Christ? And do we expect God to speak powerfully? through his son Jesus to us as we approach his word. I pray that we do. I pray that, that has, my goal in preaching this today has, has been achieved. 
Because I want us to walk away with a newfound hope in God's word. That it's not something to be ignored or to be treated flippantly. But it's something that we, we look to and expect God to speak to us. And we're humble and we're quiet and we're ready to listen. I want us to tremble at God's word. I want you to hear God's word because he has the power to save our souls. So listen carefully, speak prudently, anger with God's gospel-centered purposeness of glorifying him and not yourself, and get rid of your sinful anger and receive Jesus with true humility because he can save your souls. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, you have shown us yet again the truth of your grace and your mercy on sinners like us who do not deserve, even for a moment, your goodness. But Lord, you are patient and abounding in steadfast love and merciful. We are so blessed by that. That is our blessing. When we think of blessings, we want so much. We want so much. We want so many things. We have so much that we can't even, we don't have a place to put it in our homes. But the greatest blessing that we can ever possibly imagine is what we have in Christ Jesus. When we come to your word, I pray that we would come to it expectantly, ready to hear, ready to listen. Make us humble. Make us, make us teachable, Lord. In Christ's name I pray this. Amen.